Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. God created humanity as bearers of his image. He made us who we are, including our biology and our gender. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series by design with this sermon entitled God's Design for Sexuality, which covers Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray aloud together our prayer of illumination. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. I said last week, and uh, just as a reminder of again this week, as we move further into this series, one of the things that we're going to ask of you is when we're dealing with such topics as God's design as it pertains to sexuality and singleness and marriage, it's a highly charged, emotionally charged issue for all of us. And so with that, I'm going to ask that you, if you find a point that is made that you strongly agree with such that you want to clap, I'm going to ask that you don't. If you find a point that is made that you disagree with such that you want in some way to, to protest or boo or whatever it may be, I'm going to ask that you don't. And, and the, really the anchor of all that is to say this. The Bible talks a great deal about prudence, to listen with prudence, to act with prudence. So let's be a people who do that. And uh, of course, we want to engage with you on this. And so one of the things that we mentioned last week, we'll continue to mention every week, is that if you have questions, but I want it, it's a little misleading. Certainly you can submit questions. But even if you would say, I just would love someone to talk to, have a conversation with about these things, where it's not just a Sunday morning hearing from the preacher thing, but to sit down and talk, then go to questions at perimeter.org and let us know. We'd love to meet with you. We have lots of pastors and staff uh, and officers within the church, uh, shepherdesses that would love to sit down with you if that's a need and a desire that you would have. So go to questions at perimeter.org and we'd love to help you there. One last thing I'll say is this. This morning as we consider God's design for sexuality, th- there's just no way that I could say everything that I could say or maybe even should be said in a sermon. And so I want to uh, make some recommendations to you of just resources that I have consulted and our team has consulted that have been incredibly helpful. Now, you can take a screenshot of this if you want to, uh, but this will also be posted on uh, perimeter.org forward slash Norris, which is my last name. I like to post resources there that I find to be helpful. And of course, please know this. I think in this day and time, it's important to always make this disclaimer. Just because you recommend a resource does not mean that you agree with everything that is written in that book or in that article or on that podcast. It just means that I have found it to be helpful, thought-provoking, interesting, and yes, there's much of it that would be uh, instructional for us in terms of the kingdom of God. So that's a, uh, something to be checking out as well if you wanna dive deeper into these things. We'll be doing, I mentioned this last week as well, we, we are in the process of, of recording some podcasts, some Digging Deeper podcasts that we'll be getting out soon uh, with some experts in these fields. So be looking for those. Let me pray for us again and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we do give this time to you. We ask you, even if, as we've prayed corporately together, would you illuminate your word to us? And oh God, would you, would you do what only you can, doing a work in our hearts that we might indeed hear from you. Lord, I pray that this would not be an exercise in just communication from me. It wouldn't just be an exercise in listening from those who are hearing my voice, but it would be uh, several minutes here together 
of hearing from you. So we give this time to you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. In the book, The Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado, he, he sought to explain how and why so many in the early church, in the first and second century of the early church in the Roman Empire, why so many were converting to Christianity. How it became that this little sect of Judaism that was originally known as the way and dismissed by Judaism as a non-threatening little entity over here, how it became by the fourth century the, the religion of the state of Rome. And in an attempt to explain that, he gave a lot of reasons, but he gave five reasons in particular, and he, he called it the, the social vision, if you will, of the early church. Tim Keller calls it the, um, the, category, the category defying social vision of the early church. And here's the five that he gave. I'm not gonna go into detail with any of them. I just want you to notice them. And then of course, you'll notice that we'll, where we're camped out this morning is, is on the fifth one. But when he talked about the early church, he said, here's five things that marked them. First, that it was a multiracial and multi-ethnic church, which would have been so very unfamiliar and odd for those in the Roman Empire. Religion in that day and time was simply you were born into it. Of course, a lot of it had to do with the Greek gods and the Roman gods, but even with Judaism and so forth, you're born into it. And therefore, most of the time, really all of the time, it was marked by same race, same ethnicity. So if you were in a certain nation, you worship the God of that nation. Christianity was the first one to come along and say, no, no, no what, we're, what God is doing here and all the ways that sin separated us, he is bringing a global good news to bear through his son Jesus such that the church will actually reflect the nations, not just a nation. Secondly, the early church was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized in such a way that famously one of the early Roman emperors said that the Christians care for their poor uh, immeasurably more than we do. Not only do they care for their poor, they care for our poor as well. There was an incredible marked reality of the early church being so selfless that each individual and the churches corporately were giving themselves constantly to the needs of the poor and the marginalized. Third, early church was non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Again, very countercultural in the Roman Empire. If you, if you cross me, it was very prudent and, and, uh, and normal for someone in the Roman Empire to immediately exact revenge as the, as the code would go. But the church marked an unreal, unimaginable, uh, long suffering with those around them. The most persecuted by far people of the early uh, Roman government in the first and second century. Fourth, strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. It's been well documented how the early church in these first couple of centuries were uh, known for how they would go to bat for and stand in the gap for little ones to be rescued that had been left in fields to die, oftentimes because of some deformity, sometimes just simply because it's a girl, the female. And the church, hearing the cries of these little ones, would go and raise these children, bring them into homes. And in the ways in which it was manifested in the first century Roman Empire, they fought against abortion as well and child sacrifice. A category defying social vision. The last one though that Hurtado presents is that the early church revolutionized the sex ethic, the sexual ethic. It's very common in the Roman Empire, in fact, it was normal in the Roman Empire in those days, that men, even if married, could sleep with any man or woman he wanted as long as that person was of a lower social status. Now, women could only sleep with their husbands. But as a result of the way in which men were able to freely exercise any and all sexual desire, regardless of how debased it may be, you, re, you had a result, uh, part of the result of that was that you had cult prostitution all throughout the Roman Empire. The Bible speaks to this. 
some of what the early church was doing, some of what God was doing through the early church was actually presenting to the Roman Empire an entirely different countercultural, uh, uh, category-defying sexual ethic. To present a design that would say that, no, it's, it's one man, it's one woman, it's one flesh, it's one lifetime. And if it's not that, then it's a call, a glorious call to singleness and to celibacy. This was the way in which the early church functioned in a culture that was so very uh, foreign to that kind of thinking, to that kind of teaching, to that kind of belief. Here's one of the points that I want to hear, just want you to hear right off the bat. I want you to hear that to know, wow, God did an incredible thing to saturate the Roman Empire through the church, even though they were incredibly category-defining in what they believed. But I also want you to hear that in some ways, I want to emphasize that, in some ways, what we are watching today, engaging with today, if you have a classical, orthodox, Christian, historical position on sexual ethics, that what you're dealing with today is really at some level nothing new. From the very beginning of the church, our sexual ethic was considered strange. And so here we are today, and we find ourselves in a cultural reality where really not much has changed from the standpoint of that the church is seen as different and unusual at best and hateful and dangerous at worst. You know, it wasn't that long ago, really even within the last 50 years, where the, uh, the traditional and historical Christian ethic on sex was considered old-fashioned and quaint. And as I just mentioned, now it's trans- transitioned into uh, that perspective and that belief is considered dangerous and hateful. So what are we to do with it? How do we res- are we to respond? I'm, I'm going to get to that going to address that, but if we're going to address that, we have to start at the beginning, and not the beginning of the, of the early church, but at the very beginning, when God created. I'll read to you again, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Man, by the way, there is the generic word for all mankind. So this is including men and women. And he made them after our likeness, meaning God's likeness, the Trinity, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I won't have time to teach that part, but just one statement. God designed men and women as the pinnacle, as the crown jewel of his creation in such a way that we would like, uh, that we would image him in his likeness, that we would mirror him in the world in his likeness such that we would actually rule and reign over all creation with the way in which God designed. So it was a good, benevolent rule and reign over all of creation to cause it to flourish, to cause it to become even more beautiful than God's original creation. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Naturally, you may already be picking up that where where we'll camp out is really verse 27, that he said, the Bible instructs us that God is the creator of all things and he created mankind, but then we get specificity there at the end. He created them, male and female, and there's something glorious about, even mysteriously glorious about the reality of male and female and the way God designed us, that together, I'm not necessarily saying marriage here, I'm just saying together, as we exist together, we glorify God and we image him in a beautiful way. Man doesn't fully image God, woman doesn't fully image God, but man and woman together fully image God to a world that he created. You know, when we consider some of what we're, um, you know, engaging with our society around us, I'll just mention this, a recent Gallup poll found that one in 10, that's 9.1% of millennials identify as LBGTQ. One in six, that's 16%, 
of Gen Z identify as LBGTQ. That's just simply a statistic. That's not a judgment. There's nothing behind that other than to say there is a great move over the last decade within our society away from not just the belief in God's design, but the posturing of God's design to be antithetical to flourishing life. Here's how I would define God's design, very simply. It's the value of self anchored in our likeness, our imaging of God, and in the, bra- in, the, in the embrace of his design. Very simple definition. There's so much more to be said, but it's the, it's the value of self. When we consider who am I, how do I, how do I begin to even define who I am? It starts primarily with, with looking outside of myself, not inside of myself. It's looking to a God who I'm made in the image of, who we all are made in the image of. Every human has the distinct honor of being made in the image of God, every single one. And with that, there is incredible, at some level, inexplicable value in every single image bearer. There is dignity There is worth. To be uh, made in God's image means that we are made like him in his makeup. Now, God is not, God doesn't have a body like we do. He's a spirit. Now, we know now Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, came in human flesh and now, even still for all of eternity, lives in human flesh. But God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he is a spirit fundamentally. So what that means is, Who we are in our physicality doesn't necessarily mirror image God in the same way that we have arms and legs and so forth. But what the Bible makes abundantly clear is that our physicality and our biology matters deeply. The the Bible keeps emphasizing this, actually. It's not just a Genesis 1, 26 and 27 thing. Again, in chapter two of Genesis, if you want to think about it this way, Genesis one is a 35,000 foot view of creation. Genesis two is a zoom in ground level, boots on the ground uh, look at how God created man and woman. And in that, he moves from the Hebrew generic terms of male and female, and he moves to the specific individual terms in Hebrew of man and of woman, of Adam and of Eve. Now, some have argued, well, that was pre-Genesis 3. That was, that was before sin came into the world, and now everything's different now. Well, there's truth to that, absolutely. There, so much has changed. I'll speak to that in just a moment. But fundamentally, organically, we are still made in the image of God and in male and female. Genesis 5, after God had flooded the earth, uh, the earth with, with Noah, He reiterates the very same thing that he gave Adam and Eve. He says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Again, you see the generic terms in the Hebrew down to the specific of man, mankind, man and woman. Matthew 19, go all the way to the New Testament. Jesus is asked about marriage. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But some Pharisees come to Jesus and they're looking to catch him in a trap as they often did. And they're asking him about divorce and what's legal and what's not legal and this and that. And he goes back to Genesis 5 and Genesis 1 and this is what he says. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus is pressing in In his day, the very same fundamental truths of the design of God, that God created all creation, but as the crown jewel of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, he created man and woman, the only ones who have the distinct honor of being made in the image of God with distinct responsibility to rule over all creation unto his glory. And the way we are made, even biologically, matters in the way that we reflect God. Our bodies matter. Katie McCoy said it like this, Genesis 1 and 2 tells, then retells how God created humanity. Chapter 1 describes humanity in relationship to the rest of God's creation. 
God made mankind the culmination of his creative work in his image. It describes the first human beings as male, and there's that Hebrew word in female. This requires, I'm sorry, this refers to the sexual difference between male and female. It also demonstrates that biological sex is binary. Chapter two describes humanity in relationship to each other, what today we would call gender identity. Instead of finding male and female, we find man and woman. The male and the female relate to one another as a man and a woman, respectively. Here we find God's original intent for sex and gender. In both Genesis 1 and 2, the sets of terms correspond. If a human being is male, then God created him a man. If a human being is female, then God created her as woman. Our biological sex indicates and informs gender identity. Here's what McCoy is saying and what the Christian ethic would say is this. That our bodies matter in a way that our sex actually informs our gender. Because what's becoming the argument, even within certain Christian circles, progressive Christian cult, uh, circles, is to say that our sex is different than our gender. And there's truth to that. You could say that sex is fundamentally biological and gender is fundamentally psychological. Talk about that in just a moment. But what the scriptures are doing in the original Hebrew language is they're connecting those two undeniably. That in chapter one, as God is presenting to us the biology of who we are, he is immediately in chapter two speaking to the psychology, if you will, of who we are in our gender. One informs the other. You know, it's interesting that oftentimes the response to someone who has said, um, even those who have been raised in the church and have said, I'm, I'm going to embrace something outside of what the church teaches in terms of my sexual identity. And, and what tends to be the response of the church, not always, but certainly far too often, is rejection, condemnation, or at best, a flippant and even joking dismissal. A, a, a putting upon that person uh, a weight that says to them, you are more fundamentally messed up than, than I am. What we have to realize, first and foremost, I want you to pull out of anything that's gender and sexual mind right now, and I just want you to think in general about humanity. Because after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where do we go? We go to Genesis 3. This is where we were last week as Caleb just laid a foundation for us and Genesis 3 tells us something, screams something to us, and that's this. We are all broken. All of us. And to get even more specific, as we watch this, the pages of Scripture unfold, and even if you just watch life in general, if you just look around you and look at your own heart, then something else is true. Not only are we all broken, we are all sexually broken. All of us. There's not one person that exists that isn't in some form or fashion sexually broken. And, and here's what I mean by that. What happened when sin came into the world? When we decided that God's design was not good and that he wasn't trustworthy, as we talked about last week, and we embraced what we thought was a better design and a better story, and we believed the lie of the enemy, what that put in us is a nature to buck against everything God designs and wants and desires for us to believe that God's way does not fully lead to life. And with that, we become a people who, who at that point received Adam's residue, as I like to call it, meaning we all now have that same nature. And I want you to think about before Genesis 3, there was this communion and union and congruence and correspondence with God and man and woman. Everything was in union with one another, fitting together. Every ethernet cord was in the right port at the heart level. It was connecting, it was making sense, desires were streamlined, all to the glory of God. And when Genesis 3 happened, when sin came into the world and we died in the garden with Adam and Eve, it's like looking at the back of a massive TV set that's hooked up to 18 different things and surround sound and there's wires going everywhere and half of them aren't connected correctly. And it's just this mangled, tangled, marred and fractured reality of the wiring of our hearts now. Every single one of us. 
and how that fracturing and marred reality of our hearts, now so different from how God originally designed us, manifests itself in very different ways. For some of us, it's a sexual ethic rejection of how God designed us. For others of us, it's not. But at the heart level, we are all sexually broken. We have to see that. We have to understand that. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So I want you to hear that at the fundamental level, the primary issue is our hearts, every single one of us. We desperately need to be made new, to be made right, for God to begin to rip out those tangled wires and put them back the way he desired, the way he designed. But it is interesting There is psychological reality to this. There is social reality to to what we're seeing in the world around us. Another uh, recent survey and study revealed that um, suggests gender confusion is affecting young women and girls at alarming and precipitous rates. Now, it affects certainly young men as well, but this study was for women. Listen to this. Girls who identify as transgender have increased from one in 2000 in 2008 to one in 20 in 2022. Why? If this is nothing new under the sun, if we can read in the early pages of the Bible that we're all sexually broken, what's going on psychologically and socially to this change? Dr. Lisa Littman conducted a survey to explain the phenomenon or the phenomena of an increasing and sudden prevalence of gender dysphoria among adolescents. Teenagers who had previously expressed no gender dysphoric symptoms. The condition known as rapid onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD, revealed an unexpected and culturally unwelcome pattern. Lippmann found the influence of an adolescent's relationships directly affected her gender identity. Among adolescents with ROGD, 87% had friends who announced themselves as gender dysphoric, had saturated themselves with material on niche websites discussing gender dysphoria or both. In other words, a condition believed to find its source and validation in one's intrinsic sense of self has extrinsic factors. Here's the point that she's making. She's making the point that the, the world's Uh, The culture around us, the the greatest thing to value is look inside yourself to determine who you are. But that's actually, according to this data, not what's really happening. It's social uh, realities around that are pressuring at some level some of the decisions that, that are being made. Not to say that it can't be desires, certainly. That's a big part of it. But there's something at play there that I think we would be foolish to ignore. Abigail Schreier said this, for these girls, trans identification offers freedom from anxiety's relentless pursuit. It satisfies the deepest need for acceptance, the thrill, the thrill of transgression, the seductive lilt of belonging. If the Bible is saying something to us in the opening pages, it's saying a lot to us. One of the things it's saying to us is that how God created us biologically matters. Timothy Tennant said this, our created bodies all point to Christ's incarnation. And in turn, his resurrected body points to our physical, bodily, not just spiritual resurrection at the end of time. If our bodies are untrustworthy, and only serve to mask the true self that is within. Then the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity as Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, cannot be trusted as a reliable means for God's most profound self-disclosure in history. Here's the point. How we're created actually points us to the end That when Jesus Christ came to redeem all creation, to begin to put those wires back in the right ports to make us again who he designed us to be, he did so in a human body as a man. And then he was resurrected from the grave to defeat the very penalty of our sin. 
the grave itself, and in so doing, he gives us through faith in him as the one true redeemer, the ability to also be resurrected from the dead. And on that day, at the very end of it all, when we who are faithful in Christ are raised with him, we will be raised man and woman according to his creation. In other words, our bodies are his. Scriptures tell us that. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Our bodies are not the landscape of our lives to do whatever we want with. They're to be used and flourished in such a way that they honor the designer. Sam Alberry, you may have noticed when I put up resources, Sam Alberry has become probably my favorite author and speaker on these issues. He is... Um, a same-sex attracted Christian. Now, that's not his identity, but he wants, you, he wants people to understand that I'm a Christian who loves Jesus. He, uh, if I remember his story correctly, he, he came out as a gay man just a year or so before he became a Christian. When he became a Christian, he began to read the Bible and he began to see, okay, we, we got something not sinking up here. He's now in his mid-40s. He became, he became a Christian and came out in, in college. And for 20 plus years now, he has chosen a glad life of celibacy to the glory of God. Listen to what he says. He says, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body has helped me. When I'm raised from the dead in the age to come, I'll be raised as a man. So my being a man is part of my, ex, uh, my eternal identity. I can say that I'm a man. There's something ontological going on there. When I'm raised from the dead and the age to come, I won't be raised with the same sexual instincts and feelings and temptations that I experience in this life. Those things are not a part of my eternal experience. Listen to this. So I don't want to sink my deepest sense of identity into something that is temporal and comes from my fallenness rather than in something that is eternal. Friends, that's not just sexual. It's a statement that carries across every desire that we have as humans, whether it be sexual or not, that would go against God and his design. I don't want to sink the deepest roots of my identity into something that is temporal and comes from my fallenness rather than in something that is eternal. But let's talk just a moment here. We won't spend too much time here, but just a moment on what is the culture's design, if you will. What is it exactly that the world around us is saying this is of most value? And this is, would be the summation, I would say. Similar to the definition for God's design, this definition would say, it's the value of self anchored in our feelings and in the rejection of God's design. So it's not, it's not anchored outside of us so that we may draw an identity from the very one who created us, that made us for himself, but it's, a, it's an identity that is expressly found internally, primarily in how we feel. And this is dangerous because as a human, you know that your feelings can't always be trusted. Alberry said this recently. He said, if earlier generations valued the phrase, I think, therefore I am, we seem to now be valuing, I sexually feel, therefore I am. And in, in today's culture, sexual identity has become the very essence of all identity. This is the marker in our culture to, to fully display identity and expression of self. Trevin Wax recently said, in the kind of culture we live in right now, the first and greatest commandment is to be true to yourself. And the second is like it, to affirm whatever self your neighbor decides to be true to. It's perhaps maybe how the culture would read the, the great commandment. So there's core questions at stake when this is the posture of so many around us. These are our neighbors, these are our friends, these are our classmates, and this is some of us who have been persuaded such that we would embrace some of these things. The core questions at stake are, what is freedom? Spiritually speaking, organically speaking, as people made in the image of God, what is freedom? The emphasis on feeling from the culture is almost always connected to freedom. Have you noticed this? I've never felt more free is the common phrase when someone embraces a sexual identity outside of God's design. It's interesting though. If you 
spend time with both those who have embraced a Christian ethic and those who have rejected a Christian ethic and have embraced an alternate sexual identity and lifestyle, John 8.32 seems to be used by both. You have those who were formerly in some way, whether it be through a gay lifestyle or through some transgender lifestyle, whatever it may be, who have become Christians and have left that lifestyle. Their desires may not have changed, but they're dying to those desires to embrace God's design. They will often say, John 8, 32, for you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Similarly though, those who have embraced an alternative lifestyle outside of God's design will use the same verse. If they, they'll say, look, I'm a Christian, but I, it doesn't mean that it affects anything of my sexual desire. And when I came out against God's design and my sexual identity, I found the truth and the truth set me free. If both sides, if you will, are using the same verse, we got a problem because both can't be true. Sean McDowell says this, he says, as a result, Freedom must be connected to our objective design, not our emotional freedom. There's all kinds of things outside of even, just don't even think sexual, is all kinds of things in the human experience that if we embrace our feelings, we will actually end up in the long run experiencing the opposite of freedom. McDowell went on to say there's a kind of freedom that comes emotionally and intellectually from aligning one's life with God's design. I'll quote McCoy again when she says this, but what if the physical body and the inner sense of gender don't align? Which one determines who we are? Preston Sprinkle gives guidance in his book Embodied when he says our biological sex determines who we are and our embodiment is an essential part of how we image God in the world. Listen to what McCoy says. Our created embodied selves tell us who we are. Who we are is not determined on how we feel. The pain of gender dysphoria is real. It is real. Please hear me. If your tendency is to shame and condemn those who are in that place of saying, I am a male body, but I am inwardly female. That's what that's what the science world calls gender dysphoria. Don't shame and condemn that. It's a real struggle. It's a real battle. They're not making that up. It's part of the fall. Just like any other part of the fall is, is, in, is affecting all of us. The pain of gender dysphoria is real. Longing for inner wholeness is real. But the promise of peace through hormone treatments and surgical procedures is an illusion. Because the purpose of our sex and gender, the purpose, purpose for which we were made, will never be discovered from knowing ourselves but in knowing the God who made us for himself. The world says, look inside, be true to yourself. The Lord says, look at me, find yourself in Christ. So what is the church's response to all this? So much more that could be said. Again, we'll dive deeper in some of these things on on our podcast, you know, haven't talked about intersex and the reality that there are some, very few, 90, almost 99% is, true, is not true of, in this case, but there is about a 1% of people who are born who have at some level biologically not male or female. What do we do with that? It's a teaser to tune into the podcast. All right, the church's response. What do we do? Three, three, three things, there's a lot, but three things primarily. First, we cherish theological clarity. It's actually a good thing, church, to be very clear on what we believe. And here's why. Clarity is kindness, ultimately. To not be confused in any way on what is it that the Bible teaches is a good thing. It's good, yes, for us, those who are already convinced of these truths, but it's good even for those who aren't so that there's no guessing going on. There's no wondering, now where do you really stand? So we, we cherish theological clarity. By the way, I'm, I'm stealing these three things unashamedly straight from Sam Alberry, by the way. Gotta give credit where credit is due. But I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that theological clarity is essential but not sufficient. Here's why. If your theology does not lead you to love people, out of that theological groundedness, then it's a terrible theology. Paul Tripp said it this way. He said, you know you're not in a good place if the particular sin of someone else concerns you more than your own. 
You know you're not in a good place when the particular sin of someone else concerns you more than your own. Here's what the church is terrible at doing. The church will actually look at those who are dealing with gender dysphoria, those who have embraced an alternative sexual identity and lifestyle, and we will rail them and we will dismiss them and we will condemn them while many of us sit in here addicted to pornography. And God is going, what are you doing? Theology is the study of God. If you stare at me, it's not gonna end up there. You're gonna be just as broken and absolutely destroyed over the ways in which your heterosexual sin is outside of the design of God as you are about this person way over here that doesn't affect your life who's outside the design of God. We've missed it. In so many ways, we love to be a people who judge and condemn while we ourselves are standing before a God with all kinds of sexual brokenness and not taking it to him. The gospel reminds us that Jesus puts us all in the same boat, all of us. And listen, at the heart level, gender dysphoria is not very different from our own brokenness. Why? Because we all struggle with hating our bodies. We all wish we looked different. We all wish our bodies moved differently. I hate the way I stand. I hate the way I walk. I see videos of me and I just struggle to watch myself. What is that? It's the same heart level. I don't like the way God designed me. We all wish so desperately that we felt differently about ourselves. And listen, if, if you're not convinced by this, then the culture that is obsessed with diet, exercise, and plastic, plastic surgery shows it. So when we sit in judgment of those who are dealing with gender dysphoria, it would be good for us to actually look at our own hearts and go, okay, that may not be my expression, but how am I just as broken, and how am I just in need of Jesus? The only one who takes all the misaligned parts of me and puts them back into him where true life is found. The greatest value of our culture is affirmation. To affirm all the various ways in people, that people want to express themselves. In fact, the greatest sin that you can commit in our culture is to not affirm someone. So what are we to do? Well, we are to be a people with, with category-defying compassion while also theologically clear in not affirming. How in the world will we do that? Well, simple answer is this. It's more complex, but it's this, at the base level, this is it. This is exactly what Jesus did. And if you're a Christian, he lives in you. And he gives you his power to live and to love and to engage with a world who hates him the way he did. There is a way that we can move forward with compassion without affirmation. We believe in a gospel that presents to us a savior who transforms hearts and minds and lives. So what do we do? What about evangelism as a church? How do we engage with people around us? Alberry has an interesting insight. He says this, in earlier generations, we were living in more of a moralistic framework. So one of the tasks in evangelism, if you're not familiar with that term, evangelism just means uh, sharing the good news of Jesus with others and his design, his, his glory, his lordship. So he says the task in evangelism was to show people they're a sinner and a lot of our evangelism began, therefore, in Genesis 3 with the beginning of sin. We have to begin in Genesis 1 in this day and age. We don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. People know they're broken for the most part. We live in an anxious age where people need to, prove, uh, need to be proven to them that they're worth something. That's Genesis 1. You're made in the image of God. You are made by a designer and his design is good. And yes, it comes with restrictions. And yes, it's hard and difficult. But in it, paradoxically, it feels to us, is true life and freedom. 
because we were made by the creator for him and by him. And we will be uh, temporarily in this life and eternally very dissatisfied and in anguish when we don't align with his design. Lastly, the third thing we can do is nurture healthy community. For the sake of time, I'll just read one more quote from Alberry here. Actually, I lied. I got one more in a minute. He says this, this church should be an embodied answer to what, to that whole predicament of how you can love someone without affirming them. Because church should be a community of people where there isn't unconditional affirmation, but where there is a depth of love and commitment that we don't see anywhere else. We will be theologically clear in this church, meaning to be a member of this church means that we would want you to be within submission to and alignment with God's design sexually in any other area of your life. Doesn't mean you're not a sinner. Doesn't mean that your desires are wayward. It just means that you're submitting to the design of God in all the ways in which that plays out in our lives. So in the same way that if someone came and wanted to be a member of this church but was in unrepentant heterosexual sin, I sleep with people other than my wife. I have an addiction to pornography, whatever it may be. We would say, hey, we're not gonna allow you to join the church yet, not because we wanna be exclusive, but because we love you and we want you to see how that's actually going to ultimately ruin you. In the same way that we do that with heterosexual sin, we do the same with other expressions of sexual identity and lifestyle that's outside of the design of God. Because membership in the church of God is at least coming before him and his church and saying his design is good and I trust him and I'll follow him even if it means that I deny myself. Is that not the essence of what Jesus called us to? If you wanna follow me, you gotta take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Do you see, are you starting to connect the dots? every single person when they come to Christ is a call to self-denial, not just for the sexually uh, ones over here who are sexually expressing differently than, than how God has designed. It's for all of us. It's a call to self-denial. Alberry was asked recently, he was asked by, on a podcast, he was asked a um, very direct question that actually caught me off guard. But the question was, Sam, you're never gonna be able to experience what I experienced as a married man. You're never gonna be able to have kids. You're not ever gonna know what it's like to be intimate with another person physically. How do you deal with that? How do you not deal with resentment towards God? And how do you not feel that God is keeping something really great from you? This was Alberry's answer. Oh, and that part of the question was, how do you not feel that God is against you, anti you? He says, God is not anti anyone that he's offering his son to. So if you're a gay person right now, God is offering you life in his son. He's not against you if he's offering you everything you could ever need and want. Now there are things he says that aren't morally right so that there are things that will need to be repented of. He's clearly prohibiting same-sex intimacy and relationships in that sort of way, but he is so for us in that he is offering Christ. But then listen to what he says next. The, the dot, dot, dot there is, I just didn't want to have more quote to read. <laughs> but the dot, dot, dot is he says, how could I feel like God's keeping anything from me? He says, I know the bridegroom. If you're not familiar with that term biblically, that's Jesus. I know him. We're the, the, the metaphor in scripture is constantly that, that God's people are married to Jesus as the bridegroom. We are the bride. He says, I know the bridegroom. I'm not actually missing out. I'm not getting the temporal signpost of the love of God that marriage is designed to be. Pause. Don't read anymore. Take this off. Listen, that's what marriage is, by the way. We'll get this in two weeks. Marriage is to be this signpost. It's not the end all be all. It's not the purpose of life, but, is it, but it exists for those who have been called to it as a signpost to what? To point the way to a greater marriage. 
to point the way to the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, as Revelation says it. There's one who we will see in all of his splendor one day as we walk down the aisle to him, as the church, his bride, and we're united to him, and we celebrate with him like never before, and we feast in his presence. That's the marriage that this little temporal marriage that we have that's beautiful and awesome and amazing, it's pointing to that. So if that's the point, listen to what Alberry says. He says, I'm not getting the appetizer, but I'm getting the entree. And the entree is so good, I can skip the appetizer. So if I have the bridegroom, then I'm not missing out. See, part of the problem in the church is that we have not presented the world a Jesus who is so immaculately beautiful and so all-satisfying that what they see in our lives is that I can give that up and I can give that up and I can give that up and I can give that up because he satisfies me. May we be a people who go right back to where we started last week. There's a designer who has a good design. Why? Because he is good and he is trustworthy and he loves us more than we could ever fathom. Father, would you help us get there? Would you help us be a people who have so been enraptured with a view and a picture and an experience of Jesus that we're all able to die to self in all the ways in which the desires of our heart are misaligned and fractured and marred? Or would you do the work that only you can to put us back into the order in which you created us, the good design? We know that that will be in part here. We know that there'll be certain desires that never get shifted back to your original design, at least not until you come again. But we trust you. We pray that we would be a people who live in such a way that others around us who have never trusted you would be able to do so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.